Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's show is Bruce O, the managing partner of Grove Street a boutique firm that's invested $10 billion in the private markets on behalf of 14 institutional clients. Grove Street specializes in managers that transform companies in venture capital, growth equity, and middle market buyouts. 
Our conversation canvases Bruce's immigration from China, thoughts on middle market buyouts, venture capital, and growth equity investing, opportunities in China, and co-investments. Before we get going, on Wednesday, we'll release the fifth episode of season three of Private Equity Deals. It's Corsair's purchase of TreviPay, a global business-to-business payments company that Corsair spun out of World Fuel Services. The deal is a tricky carve-out, a rebuild of a management team alongside a CEO, and another example of unlocking value in the middle market. Thanks so much for spreading the word about capital allocators and private equity deals. Please enjoy my conversation with Bruce O. Bruce, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Well, why don't we start with your path to investing? The official beginning was 2006. I had worked several years in strategy consulting and M&A advisory at Monitor Group when I met the folks at GGV Capital. It was an eye-opening encounter to the world of venture capital. Although I didn't join GGV several months after that encounter, Glenn Solomon, partner at GGV, introduced me to Catherine Crockett, my now partner at Grove Street. So a typical one connection leads to another connection story, but the more unusual, perhaps, and personal one dates back earlier. This was when I was about seven or eight years old. My mom and dad had started a dairy business in Sichuan, China, raising cows on the farm and selling milk in the city where we lived. Every morning, my dad would ride a motorcycle, carrying the gallons of milk from the farm into the city near the apartment where we lived. I would greet him, help unload the milk, and start shouting the neighborhoods, fresh milk for sale. And then as people walked out of their homes, lining up to buy our milk, I would help my dad or mom sell people the milk and collect money. It was in the 1980s in China. I think our milk might have been one of the first farm-to-table products. We had put in almost all of our family savings in this venture and almost lost it all. As it turned out, the milk business was very difficult. Before efficient cold storage, everything we couldn't sell the day off, we had to dump. And most Chinese consumers at the time, and even perhaps today, don't eat a lot of cheese. We only saved our investment because the cows gave birth to five calves, which my dad delivered by himself with me standing next to him, holding the medical book, reading aloud the instructions to how to do it. (laughs) So we didn't spend money on the vet, and the calves were worth quite a bit of money, and we ended up making a small profit after about three years of running this business. And the next few family ventures turned out to have better business models, better timing, and all that, but always the same hustle and hard work. So looking back, I think growing up with those experiences has had a very profound impact on me as an investor. It has instilled in me a very deep respect and appreciation for entrepreneurs, for business owner operators who devote their time, energy, their intellect, their courage to start a business, grow a business, turn around a business. Accessing those kind of entrepreneurs and business owner operators with whom I think I share an almost spiritual connection dating back to the memories of selling milk is what we do at Grove Street. And it's been a great privilege to be able to generate returns for our clients by partnering with these people. What was your 
path from China to the U.S.? So I came here as a first-generation immigrant, and it's actually a funny story. I applied to a school in New York, and when I went to purchase a ticket, they said, "Well, you're going to Syracuse," and I said, "No, no, no, I'm going to New York, meaning New York City." They said, "No, no, you're going to Syracuse." Turned out that I went to a place named Oswego, and so I went to SUNY Oswego,、well, unexpected, thinking I was going to New York City. You know, it's like five, <laughs> actually six hours away. So when I got there, I realized that was not the place that I wanted to stay. So after a year, I got myself to Williams College, and that was the beginning. So you joined Grove Street. What was the history of the firm? The company was started in 1998 by my current partner Catherine Crockett and one of our retired partners, Glenn Harris. They shared a common mentor in Peter Brook. A legendary investor, leader, great gentleman, TA Associates, right? Advent International. Peter put them in touch, and the unique insight that Catherine and Clint had at the very beginning was by aligning themselves on the one hand with long-term, sophisticated blue-chip investors as clients, and on the other, exceptional opportunities in market segments that have higher inefficiency. Therefore. Higher alpha potential, but hard to do. There was an opportunity to build a company that could compound in its success and reputation over a very long runway. Alignment was a foundational element in their original vision. So, from day one, it was structured that the senior members of Grove Street are required to commit personal capital alongside our clients. And for the partners, a significant portion of long-term compensation. Comes only in the form of performance-based carried interest, and finally, there was a strong belief that talent drives performance, and so from early on, there has been a very strong, consistent emphasis on attracting and growing the right kind of talents that are both capable but also aligned in terms of values. What does the business look like today? A lot of the core of the business is very similar. I'll maybe start with a few numbers: twenty-five, fourteen, ten, and forty-three.、Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> start with twenty-five. Twenty-five.、Um, company was started in nineteen ninety-eight, so twenty-five years old as a company. Fourteen is the number of clients that we have had since inception. Fourteen great elite clients. For them, we have built forty-three separately managed accounts. So you can do the math: lots of repeat customers and. In total, the clients have committed about ten billion dollars to us. So, what are the types or the profile of the clients that you have of these fourteen? While we have a concentrated base of clients, we serve a quite diverse group. So, we work with very sophisticated family offices, large insurers, pensions, sovereign wealth funds, and they span the globe from the U.S. and Canada to. Europe, the Gulf, Asia. Underneath that variety, however, are some important common characteristics. The first thing I would say is that our clients are very sophisticated investors. So, as either some of the largest institutional pools of capital in the world or hyper-connected families, they have great market access, great intelligent internal teams, and exceptional investment track records. As opposed to what Your former colleague 
David Swinson would call the casual investors. Our clients, I would say, are really serious investors. So they understand deeply the potential, but also the challenge in certain segments of the market, whether it's venture capital or low mid market buyouts, and approach them really thoughtfully. So the final common thread across them is, I think our clients tend to have a unique combination of self-awareness and self-confidence. They are deeply aware, because they're great investors themselves, the benefits and the trade-offs of what to do in-house and when to leverage an external partner. And they're confident to operate from the first principle. In picking a manager, for example, they can focus on what should matter the most, the expertise, the alignment, the transparency, how dedicated this partner will be to me, how important am I to them. Should I say they're bold enough to not always hire the IBM? What do you think the core use case for what you're doing is for your clients? There are several areas I would just maybe mention two. Number one is returns. Take one of our target investment areas, low mid market buyouts in US and Europe. For example, the medium return of funds, let's say it's sub 1 billion, is quite similar to the medium returns of funds 5 billion above, observable from the industry data. But the top 10, 20% performers in the sub 1 billion category generates meaningfully higher returns than the same corresponding top 10, 20% in the larger funds. And as a result, a dedicated investor with the right resource, the right experience and process have a chance to systematically capture that upper layer of the opportunities and form portfolios that add both you know, absolute returns and risk-adjusted returns over cycles. So after looking to us for returns, the clients look to us for deal flow and knowledge sharing. So for some clients, we act as a farm team. For example, we first invested in a fund here in New York called American Industrial Partners when they were owning $400 million. As the team continued to deliver results and became, quote, a consensus fund among LPs, we handed that relationship over to our clients and they became large direct investors in AIP's subsequent oversubscribed funds. So in effect, the talent that we try to identify early in the life cycle can be caught up, just like in baseball, into the direct portfolios of our clients. Right, so let's dive into how you do this. And maybe to start with, what are the groups of investments that you're putting into portfolios? So our targets have remained quite consistent over the 25 years. And those are venture capital, growth equity, and lower mid-market buyouts, which we typically define as funds sub $1.5 billion. And we do them through commitments to funds and co-invests. These are areas where, generally speaking, we observe higher degrees of inefficiency. We observe higher dispersion return. Those are places where astute investors go for return, although people tend to forget the caution label. The obstacles to getting them are very significant and something people often unfortunately ignored, but those are the areas where we tend to focus. How do you take in all of these areas a fairly large universe and start to think about how you get to that top 10% in each? I'd say the guiding principle relates to sourcing is that 
To pick well, we believe that we need to map the universe of opportunities, triage quickly to filter out those that do not meet your criteria, then seek to meet with as many options that meet your criteria as possible, and proactively approach the best teams. And we do that through cultivating a reputation in the marketplace, building informed networks, as you'd expect, and a lot of just daily hustle. One example that, that comes to mind, although I cannot disclose the name of it, a venture fund, for example, came to us from one of the most respected venture investors in the Valley, who we asked who he most respects. He had a pretty high bar, so he didn't have a lot of ideas. And then we ended up backing this incredible team along with owning four other LPs, including several prominent university endowments. So that's you know example of marrying a carefully cultivated reputation, the right relationships with proactive work. What are some of the criteria that you use that fits that type of fund you're looking for other than someone great recommended them? So in both buyouts and venture, I would say there's a set of clear criteria that define the attributes of something we look for. In buyout, for example, we look for operationally intensive teams with a well-defined strategy, a set of expertise, low loss rates, a demonstrated ability to generate upside and strong alignment. And in venture, we're looking for teams led by partners who have invested in in a meaningful way, not just a casual joining the club way, the most important technology companies, including those that are becoming tomorrow's. This is part of the judgment we have to exercise to call which ones are that execute a thoughtful strategy in terms of portfolio construction, stage focus, and raising funds that are appropriately sized for the team and the opportunity. I'd love to dive into the diligence process, maybe on each of them. And so let's start with the mid-market buyouts. You mentioned teams with operational intensivity and helping their companies. How do you tease that out? Because it's something that oftentimes you would expect many of the managers would say, oh, we do all these things to help our companies. Again, astute observation, because nobody, at least now, comes to market without saying they are operationally focused even though that was maybe less the case dating back 10, 15 years. There was a period of time investor focus on where the source of return may not have been front and center about operational. There's a lot of things we look for, as you said, to really tease that out. One would be looking deeply into the core members of the team's prior records. So we like, for example, teams that have members that have been not only investors, but also true operators. And there are many examples of that. We look for demonstrated evidence where they have truly changed the trajectory of companies, including sometimes near failures that were able to be saved. And quantitatively, there are things you can look for too. For example, it is usually the case that an operational intensive team tends to use also less leverage at the beginning. So if we see a team that tends to use higher leverage at the beginning, that is a bit of a warning signal to us. Because if you are trying to really impact the trajectory of a company operationally, you don't want to compound that with high financial risk, certainly not at the beginning. What are some of the other metrics you might look at when you're thinking about the operational expertise of the team? 
maybe uh, I'll mention an example. So a fund that's based here in New York called Intandem. It's a healthcare specialist in buy and build healthcare services businesses. The team came out of a, another well-known private equity firm where they were acting as a contracted management team running deals. And they did that for close to a 10-year period with an exclusivity during certain periods with this one fund and other times bringing other investors. So they were literally acting as the CEO, the chief marketing officer, the chief legal officer, the M&A officer for each of those buy and build platforms. They did it sequentially. So in that particular case, when we talked about their experience, we, we spoke to the CEOs they worked with. The level of engagement when you force rank that to what a typically advertised operational you know, team, it, it just stands out. You mentioned wanting low loss rates. I'd love to pull that thread because on the one hand, the way to get no loss rates is have a new fund that's never done a deal before. So they have no loss rate, which probably isn't optimal under that lens. But there's also a degree of assessment of risk reward that goes into loss rates. How have you thought about the importance of having low loss rates? This was added, I would say, after the financial crisis period. So we went back and looked at our bio portfolio. In that sample, there were funds that generated very strong total fund level returns while having a higher degree of portfolio variability. But countering that is that there were a lot of funds that generated equal, if not better, total fund returns while having less variability in the outcome. So our conclusion from that was if we have teams that can control the trajectory of their companies, there's exogenous factors that could always hit a company and the portfolio that we can't control for. But if they are truly experts in the sectors or the strategies that they execute, they are really careful investors that don't use a lot of leverage, then the odds should be that a real wipeout, a bad deal should be lower. And that is not necessarily a trade-off for lack of upside. What does that imply about what stage fund you like to dive in? So they can be fund one or they can be fund four. Now, even for fund ones, we would never invest in first-time investors. As we'd say, we'd invest in first-time funds, but not first-time investors. There's need to be teams that have demonstrated track records in their prior pre-fund careers, whether spin-out situations or bootstrapped deal by deal. So what we're really trying to look for, I would say, is that really exceptional, high-quality field choices that we can find every year out of literally thousands in this market, as you know. If you turn over to the venture side, how is your diligence process different than what it is in buyout? I think underlining process of diligence is quite consistent. The process itself has to be bottoms up, detailed. We always, for example, spend a lot of time with the manager. We always do deep references, including lots of off-sheet references. We always do independent modeling work on the important unrealized investments. So we have our own low, medium, high views of the trajectory of unrealized investments and always have multiple internal discussions where everybody 
shares their views and votes. So those core elements of the process don't change. The specific questions related to each investment can change. So in venture versus buyout, for example, while you can analyze the emerging driver companies that are unrealized and build models and projections and gather different facts around it, there is a lot more qualitative pooling different sources of insight and facts and context when it comes to venture. To understand, for example, who is on the rise in terms of reputation, who is maybe dying on the vine, may I say, that's oftentimes not obvious to the broad investor base, but we're trying to get to that. What does a fully baked due diligence process look like and result in for you? A fully baked diligence process includes the elements that we talked about a little bit earlier. Lots of cycles together, lots of references, lots of modeling work, and lots of internal discussions and debates. The result is a strong set of views emerging within our own team, not always consensus, but a strong set of pros and cons that have emerged that each key members of the investment team of Grove Street are fully aware of. Because we have a quite concentrated approach to investing, picking not that many things to do every year, one of the things we try to do is to have for the high priority opportunities is to have a all hands on deck approach where while everybody is encouraged to source their best ideas, when we come down to a subset of those to do, it's not just one or two or three deal team members. It can be the full team that spend time. So the result is, I would say, a very strong set of clarity around the key questions for each investment. Once you've done the work, found someone that you think is great, it's rare that you're the only one who's done that. And in a market where everyone is trying to find the next great manager, how do you think about this concept of your reputation so that you can win over a GP in, in the event that there's scarce capacity? It is true, as you say, oftentimes really compelling opportunities tend to attract more capital than needed. It is, of course, however, worth remembering that sometimes the contrarian views can be correct. And even the consensus views, even when they're right, can still be diluted. If an amazing fund that should be raising $1 billion ends up raising $2 billion because investors pile in, the risk-return profile may have changed, that they're not as compelling anymore. But yes, in those situations where the opportunity is truly amazing and competition for it intense, part of our special power is to sell ourselves as preferred investors. So a recent example that come to mind is a European lower mid-market buyout team. They had been backed by a number of prominent European families exclusively. And over a dozen year period, generated exceptional returns and demonstrated that this was a team that could have a lot of potential ahead of them for many years. So we caught wind of them before they decided to raise their next fund reached out directly and they included us in their outreach. But on the day of the scheduled call, they emailed and said, sorry, we have to cancel it because we've decided that we're not going to take any non-family investor. 
we're not going to take no for an answer. So wrote a letter from one entrepreneur to another, had one of our GPs call them directly and had a CEO of a co-invest portfolio company call directly after that. We got the call back and then through interactions, they started to realize and appreciate that institutionalizing with Grove Street does not have to come with the ugly parts of bureaucracy, painful circular processes, inefficient decision-making, or high teen turnover. As the funding partner said to me towards the end of this process, he said, you know, I like the fact that you guys are also business owners, just like us, you get us. And I like your record of stability so that I know the chances that I'm going to deal with the same people, you as the LPAC member, 10, 15 years from now is high, which is not something you can say about a lot of institutions. In situations like that, how do you balance trying to get them to understand that you can be a good partner with wanting to do your full breadth of diligence to make a decision on the other side? The latter will, will not compromise. If the situation is such that we are not allowed the full ability to really get to know each other's partners, then we probably are not meant to be together. And one of the lessons I have learned by observing broadly is that there are always amazing opportunities and we don't need to get too attached to any opportunity. Just wait for the fat pitch. And ironically, the ones where we had to sell ourselves are the ones that I think want you to do real deep work because they want us to fully understand what we're buying into and so that we have a chance of having long-term relationship. When you have a mandate that canvases each of, say, middle market buyouts, growth, and venture, how do you think about putting that portfolio together? It's a amakase menu we're trying to build for each client where every dish has to delight and then they have to come together as a smartly diversifying way. So a buyout portfolio, for example, will, as you would expect, target both vintage diversification. We typically target a three-year commitment period. We then seek to diversify strategies within buyouts from turnaround to buy and build and target the core segments GDP. So the portfolio is diversified across industries. And in venture, we're typically targeting, I'd say, 80% in information tech and the rest in healthcare and biotech. And then 60, 70% in the US and the rest in proven parts of venture centers around the world. In addition to those general rules, we use a number of quantitative tools as well, including a Monte Carlo simulation tool that we developed with Josh Lerner. How do you go about commitment pacing? So consistency, play through the cycle to begin with. So during COVID, for example, it was a crazy period for fundraising in venture. People were coming back twice as fast and raising twice as much. So we tried very hard not to dance to that music. So on average, we're averaging about 10 to 15 venture funds per year and six to eight buyout funds per year. Are your pools generally evergreen? Each pool is a fund of one. So each SMA is a fund of one where a client commits capital and the senior members of Grove Street commit capital alongside that client. So there's no commingling between the client's capital. 
And that fund has a defined life. We typically invest that for in the first two or three years, and then we manage that until the end of the vehicle. So they're not evergreen in that sense. But as we talked about earlier, we have enjoyed some great repeat loyal clients over the years that have given us second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth programs. As cycles come in and out, how do you calibrate the cadence with your own assessment of what might happen for a particular vintage going forward? We approach every vintage, I think, with some views, but we're cautious that the true nature of a particular vintage is, of course, never knowable as we live through them. In the extreme sort of years, like 2021, it was easier to call that, wow, this is a repeat of a movie from 2000 and we shouldn't be reaching for dessert. So I think our view is that we try to stay steady from vintage to vintage, but invest with some degree of bias that's appropriately contrarian. The growth area has gone through quite a bit of change over the last two years. So would love to hear your assessment of where you see interesting opportunities and where the risks still lie in growth equity. We just went through a period where the music was so loud that not just one chair was missing. This time, a couple of chairs were missing. And so just as we are feeling better about the music quiet down, there's a new DJ entering the house in the name of generative AI. And so one risk I see is the investor FOMO behavior again. On the other side of it, the flip side of it, the opportunity in tech innovation and growth TAM in general, build valuable businesses continue to increase. Cloud adoption, as mundane as it may sound now, having been a decade in the running, is really in the mid-innings in terms of penetration. And then there are new sectors that historically untouched by venture or growth that are becoming prime areas for company building. Think about defense, trillion dollar global industry. I'd love to hear some of your views about investing in China today. Going back to your roots, understanding the country, both how you're thinking about it and how some of your investors are thinking about it. So we have been a pretty long-term investor in China venture dating back to 2005, first China-dedicated venture fund commitment, and actually a bit earlier than that, if you think about the drivers for first GGV fund, for example, they were a Series A investor in Alibaba. So it's been a long time. On the other hand, I have always approached, along with my partners, in making commitments to China, as I used to joke, every commitment we make is both full enthusiasm, conviction, and full level of scare. And that has resulted to a very modest total exposure. So we have consistently invested, picked carefully our managers, but never went up in the ways that some of our peers have. So I would say today, the risk associated with China investments in general are very reflected in the price premiums in terms of asset valuation or lack of bid for any assets in the private markets, for example. So the question, therefore, for investor is that if you 
believe that the risks are where they are and they're not getting worse, one could argue there is a premium that you can get paid for taking those risks now. If you, however, believe that the risks could get even worse and or has to last a very long time, then it could become a more difficult calculus. What do you think you understand about investing in China that someone that isn't a native wouldn't? I always remind myself that there's the danger of knowing too much or getting too close to something, and therefore you don't see it clearly. So my partners who have also spent a lot of time thinking and wrestling with these issues contribute as much insight to China as I do. So I will say perhaps one perspective that I have about China is that it is a society and a culture and a country that is amazing and have unbelievable entrepreneurial drive and resilience dating really thousands of years. On the other hand, it's a sort of a river that can twist and turn in ways that might shock a non-native mind. So it is one where I think worth for large institutional investors seriously think about their long-term exposure, but do with extreme care. As you've been participating in co-investments for a long time, I'd love to hear what you see as some of the best practices for making it work and adding value. There's a lot of aspects we could talk about, but maybe three brief comments. The number one is a strong fund portfolio serves as a strong foundation for co-invest. It sounds very obvious, but it's something that should never be forgotten. So we don't accept the idea that you could do a good enough fund and think that you could pick the better part of the deals out of a good enough fund. That's not something we do. Number two is alignment is critical. So we construct our co-invest as organic parts of a SMA, meaning the co-invest performance is netted and pulled together with the fund performance in determining our net performance, something different from industry practice. And that has, in my mind, led to very good mitigants against divergent incentives in selection. It's a very important part. Number three is that maintain high selectivity. There are different approaches to invest. You could index and do more, or most of the deals are shown to you. Or, But for us, see a lot of deals, force rank even among your best choices and only pick a subset is a very good formula. What are some of the characteristics of the ones that you have chosen? So from a business fundamentals perspective, they check a number of characteristics. These are all for the most part, strong, good businesses, mission-critical product services to customers, hard to replace, resilient, pricing power, high margin cash flow characteristics. The capital structure dynamics is also, I would say, more consistent than different. They tend to be anywhere between three to four times in leverage at entry. So when we see a deal that's four and a half times or more, we tend to raise our eyebrows. And then the last thing that's a characteristic across them is that they sound obvious, but they have a very strong alignment with the strength of the GP. That's an area we pay a lot of attention to trying to tease out. Is this the deal led by the right partner out of a fund? 
How have you participated in looking at co-investments on the venture and growth side? We have not really done much in the venture side at all. It requires a very deliberate, different strategy to do venture co-invest, in our opinion. Idiosyncratic risk is far greater than buyouts, and therefore you have to approach it with a diversified enough of a portfolio, which then gets you to the, do you get back to the average return? Are you better off taking the funds? And then, as is well documented, the verse selection in venture is very high. So we haven't really focused on venture co-invests. What are some of your biggest concerns in the various ecosystems you're playing? So we talked about the investor FOMO in venture growth, perhaps. In buyouts, our managers historically were not heavy users of debt. As I said, our portfolio average debt is about three to four times. The higher interest rates will have an impact on them, but I think it's limited. They had to generate returns from non-financial engineering sources. They just have to continue to do so. We always worry about too much capital in general, overfunding, but there's not much we can do about that other than controlling our own pace and holding the bar high. This is maybe a risk, but also an opportunity, I would say, where I have a particular interest in finding buyout GPs, teams that are exceptional at using technology to transform their companies. So I'm not talking about just putting in a new CRM or a new accounting software system, new financial dashboards. I mean, that's table stake, right? These are very foundational level transformations. We've backed a few teams that have done this. And so that's an area where I think it's a threat coming from new technologies, new modalities to existing business models, competition. And so it's a risk to the managers who are not paying attention or understand it deeply, but likely an opportunity for those who do. It's a bit of an insight I think we're, we're drawing from investing both venture and, and buyout. What, if any, are some of the mistakes that you see people making in the market? One behavior I do observe is that investors sometimes or boards, et cetera, are influenced by a rare view mirror of returns. So in 2009, 2010, for example, you look back, the 10 years of venture return was pretty bad and people are saying, we'll never do that again. And now it's a time where you look back 10 years, it looks pretty good and it probably will look good for a while just because the stickiness of returns. Yet underneath that, I think there are just important changes happening across the platforms from large ones that are going through succession and team transition to the small ones that tried their hands and now saying, maybe this is not something I want to do anymore. I think that there's a lot of, we'll just do what seemed to have made sense going on with investors. It's comforting. There's conventional wisdom. It's, you should just stick to your needings. I think on the margin and in some corners, maybe even more than just the margin, rethinking how you deploy it and what portfolio you built for the next decade is something I, I don't think a lot of investors are doing. How are the impact of higher rates and a slowdown in the fundraising cycle impacting what you're seeing? So 
the slowdown in fundraise has been more notable so far in venture than buyouts. So we haven't seen a notable change in terms of buyout funds, interesting teams that are coming to market. It's taken them on average a little bit longer to close the fund, which is fine. The interesting thing, I would one thing I might notice is on the distribution side. This is kind of an interesting trend. So if I take a 10-year view from, say, 2013 to 2022, I would second them into probably two segments. The first seven years, 13 to 19, and the last three that are the pandemic and ZERP years. So for us, for example, the first seven years average distribution year to year is, is a very healthy number and with a modest variation. So the lowest year is only 15% less, one five, than the average. It's a very tight band. And of course, that average went to 50 plus percent higher in the next three years. So we kind of put forward two and a half years of distributions. We could have zero distribution in 2023, 2024, and a half of 25 to get back to the average historically. The interesting with 2023 so far is that so total distributions for us is tracking almost 60% in the first three quarters to that old seven-year average. So with Q4 usually being a stronger quarter, we actually have a chance to get within that range of 15% lower than the average, I think. And if you peel back the onion within that number, that 60% tracking, buyout is tracking 90% and venture is tracking 37%. So one question that I'd love to find out is how does it compare to industry? It's hard to get the data. Anecdotally, I know a lot of investors are not happy with the distributions they're getting this year so far. I try to look at the industry level exit values which of course is not a perfect, right? But just total exit values, 2023, scale to historical averages. Private equity is tracking about 56% for buyouts compared to our 90%. And venture is tracking, I think, 17-ish percent from memory to the 37% we have. So now it could just be law of small numbers. If my conjecture is right, and that is... In this market, I think our funds are still able to sell their companies, which doesn't require as much debt to get the deal done, and they can sell to their bigger private equity brothers. And so if that's true, that'd be very neat because that would mean the portfolio's rebuild could actually bring some diversification benefits in terms of liquidity timing to our large cap dominated portfolio. And on the venture side... We're seeing the beginnings of IPOs at significantly lower valuations than the last round. How are you seeing that flow through to the behavior of your venture managers? Six months ago, I think the prevailing market view was probably that we would have to wait until second half of 2024 for the IPO markets. People were pegging the close of the market maybe to two plus years, which is the high, is the upper end of historical window shut. Now you're right that it seems like with Instacart, Arm, Clavio, there's you know, all have filed and there are others too, that the market may be reopening. So I think we'll see a sorting of different companies. You know, Instacart, for example, at a price that's significantly less than the peak valuation. Now, in the venture portfolio, they have been marked down because in between there have been prices already paid to it. 
And some might argue there was a buying opportunity just about a year ago. On the other extreme of it, a company like Clavio is going to be really interesting to see because Clavio has consumed in total less than 20 million of venture capital in its life. It's incredibly efficient business. So in theory, that would be should be loved by the market and we'll see. I, I think there's no net change to the investor behavior. If anything, most investors probably were expecting the window shut longer. So again, I worry about the bad behavior of return too soon, but I think there's enough issues to sort out in existing portfolio that will still command a lot of attention for a while. When you see these regime changes in pricing, you kind of think about the secondary market. How have you guys thought about participating in the secondaries? We approached it with a opportunistic, high selectivity strategy. So where we, let's say, have a mature venture fund where the value drivers is, comes down to two or three companies that we know intimately and can form good opinions that are different from the seller's opinions and where maybe we have a bit of an edge with a GP. So we've done things like that quite successfully over history with primary like multiple return in addition to the IRR. So not an IRR game. In this market, I think we would expect that those opportunities could be a little bit easier to find, but they're not quite showing up yet. We have our shopping list. How do you think about the growth of your business, which is this sort of interesting boutique where you're kind of the asset owner, but you do have a bunch of clients, but after 20 years, not that many clients. Correct. So this dates back, I think, to those foundational values we talked about, alignment, intimacy, compound our own capital, working closely with the clients. So we decided a long time ago that we don't want to be managers of armies of people with offices around the globe and turn our daytime job into full-time fundraisers. Over the last 15 years, a lot has happened in our industry. Historically, private partnerships have gone public. Large GPs routinely sell GP stakes now, and many of our peers have been acquired by large AUMs. So we cherish our independence. We think that we can continue this measure growth pace by adding one or two clients every one, two, three years, but importantly, filtering for the right kind of partners that can be with us profitably for a long time. All right. Well, Bruce, I want to make sure I get a chance to ask you a few closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? This might sound like pandering, but podcast. <laughs> so I love taking walks whenever I can, and I love reading. So enter podcast. What are your favorites? Present company excluded, of course. Present. <laughs> um, yours are really quite high quality. So I do actually find myself listening to not only the new ones, but sometimes go back to the old ones. I like Radio Frequency, which is a healthcare-focused podcast quite a bit as well. What interesting thing do most people not know about you that's helpful in understanding who you are? As a first-generation immigrant to America, my journey has had some twists and turns that a person born here may not have. And I've tried to work hard in every situation. And in hindsight, I think 
those experiences have given me a great appreciation for just how many wonderful opportunities and wonderful people we have in this country. What's an example of one of those big twists or turns? So we talked a little bit earlier about going to SUNY Oswego, realizing <laughs> that was not New York City and getting myself over to Williams College. And what I didn't mention in that, of course, the people that helped me make that transition happen, who put in the kindness and the support and take faith in someone who was trying to make that change. What's your biggest pet peeve? Too much in flexibility. Strong conviction held lightly. Or which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? My partner, Catherine Crockett. In the early days of Grove Street, she was a great mentor to me, and we've worked as partners for a long time now. Her level of dedication to clients has impacted me deeply and extends throughout the company, something very, very special. And the second person is Wendy, my wife. She teaches finance, so it's just a natural thought partner to me when it comes to investment theories, and we have a lot of debates and discussions. But more than that, she just has a deep love for humanity, as do I. And I think that has helped attract fundamentally good people in our businesses and in our life. What's the best advice you ever received? When I was growing up, one of my idols was Bruce Lee. And so when I was 16, 17 years old, I watched this interview of him where he said, Fighting is a game with which I play seriously. So I've taken that as advice to almost anything worthy of a challenge in life. So a game with which you play seriously means that if it's a worthy challenge, I'll give it my 120%. In other words, play it seriously, but I will try not to let the outcome bother me because it's ultimately a game, a journey. All right, Bruce, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew earlier in life? That a setback or something that happened unexpected to my original wish or vision is often a blessing in disguise. Well, Bruce, thanks for sharing this walk down Grove Street. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. To learn more, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can join our mailing list, access past shows, learn about our gatherings, and sign up for premium content, including podcast transcripts, my investment portfolio, and a lot more. Have a good one, and see you next time.